0: All right, Exodus 40:34 through 38 The glory of the Lord Then the cloud of the tent of meetings of the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle Throughout their journeys wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle the people of Israel set out but if the cloud was not taken up then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel through all throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Fathers, we've read this conclusion to the book of Exodus now. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your holy word. God, that you would give us clarity as to what the the point of this story of Exodus is really all about, what it's pointing us toward. And Lord, we pray that we this morning would leave this church with a clearer focus on who you are, on your greatness, on your glory, and on who we are in light of our relationship with you. So, God, please speak to us now through your holy word. Please instruct us. Please teach us, we would ask. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Please be seated. So, this is the end. We're, We're at the end of the book of Exodus here. We've been studying this book together for several months now, and we titled this series of sermons, The Gospel According to Moses, because we're looking at how the, the story of Exodus is really kind of our story. Uh, sure, it's being lived through other people, but it's a story of a God who delivers his people from bondage and slavery. And then this God who directs and guides his people through his word and through his provision. And lastly, what we're going to be seeing this morning in our text is that God dwells with his people. Now, that, that is the ultimate end of what God has in mind for his people is that He would be dwelling with us and that we would be dwelling with Him. I read about an elderly man in Phoenix who dropped, honestly, a bombshell on his kids. He had called his son who lived in New York and he said to his son, I hate to ruin your day, but I have to tell you that your mother and I are divorcing. 45 years of misery is enough. Pop, what are you talking about? The son screams. Well... We can't stand the sight of each other any longer, the old man responds. We're sick of each other, and I'm sick of talking about this, so you call your sister in Chicago and tell her, he adds, just before hanging up the phone. Frantic, the son calls his sister in Chicago, who explodes when she hears the news. They're not getting divorced. If I have anything to do with it, she shouts, I'll take care of this. She immediately calls her dad in Phoenix, and she screams at the old man, you are not getting divorced. Don't do a single thing until I get there. I'm calling my brother back and we'll both be there tomorrow. Until then, don't do a thing. Do you hear me? And she hangs up the phone. The old man hangs up his phone and he turns to his wife and says, okay, they're coming for Thanksgiving. (laughs) And they're paying their own way. People will take dramatic steps to be with the ones that they love. And as we come to the end of the story of Exodus, we've seen God take dramatic steps to be with the ones that He loves, His people. Again, He rescued them from slavery in Egypt through great signs and wonders that we call the ten plagues. God led them and provided for them through the wilderness as they were beginning their journey toward a promised land. We saw God give them the law to direct them so that they might know how to live in harmony as a community of people. We even saw God renew the covenant with his people after they broke it by worshiping a golden calf. God has taken dramatic steps to be with the people he loves. And now at the end of the story of Exodus, we see God solidifying his place in the midst of his people through the construction of a building, really a tent called the tabernacle, God is going to ensure that his presence is smack dab in the middle of his people. And that's what it has always been about for God. God's people living in his presence. If you think about it, this is how the Bible started. This is what Adam and Eve were experiencing in the garden. They were in the presence of of God. He would walk with them in the cool of the day. And of course, this is what they ultimately lost through their sin. They were cut off from that direct presence and interaction with God because of their sins. And God's presence is what He is out to remedy for us in dramatic ways. Because as I said, people will take dramatic steps to be with the ones they love. And God loves us immensely. The reason why we're going to look at the tabernacle together as we conclude the story of Exodus is because the tabernacle takes up the majority of the text in the final third of the book of Exodus. In chapters 25 through 31, Moses was on the mountain at this point and he gets this, this vision of the tabernacle. God gives him basically the blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle. And then in chapters 35 through 40, We see God's people actually constructing the tabernacle. They get to work. They collect all the necessary resources and they put together God's house. So what we're going to do this morning is kind of do a flyover and look at the idea of God's presence because that's what the tabernacle is all about. So the first thing I want us to look at together this morning is the idea of the presence of God in the tabernacle, or later, the temple. In the story of Exodus, we're at this point now where God had delivered His people from slavery. God had directed His people through the giving of the law. And now it is time for God to actually dwell among His people in the tabernacle. In chapter 25, verse 8, God tells us up front what His purpose is. We read, "...and let them make me a sanctuary." Why? Why? that I may dwell in their midst. This is God's heart. I, I want to be in the midst of my people. Then in chapter 29, verses 44 through 46, God says to Moses, I will consecrate the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priest. Here's the key. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be there God and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Do you see the point there? God is saying the reason I saved you from slavery in Egypt and the reason why I'm building this house is because I am going to dwell with you. The reason why God sent Jesus to save you is so that God could dwell with you. There's a problem that our sin created and it's relational. And God is seeking to solve that dilemma because He wants to be with us and He wants us to be with Him. So we see that the tabernacle was God's house. The tabernacle, you should know, served as a pattern and a forerunner to the great temple that Solomon was going to build Hundreds of years later, Solomon's temple was going to be a permanent dwelling place, whereas the tabernacle was more of a temporary dwelling place. Now, don't get in your mind because of that, that the tabernacle was somehow like the ghetto -er or 1.0 version, and the temple was going to be the 2.0 better model. It wasn't that at all. In fact, just look at the different items that were used in the construction of the tabernacle. This is a very ornate, Tint that God is going to make. Here's the list of items in Exodus 35, verses 4 through 9. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution gold, silver, and bronze. It's pretty expensive stuff. Blue and purple and scarlet yarns, also very expensive in the ancient world and fine twined linens, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. So this was a beautiful uh, dwelling place for God. Beautiful uh, stones, beautiful gold, silver, bronze. But the tabernacle was a tent. The reason for that was practicality. God's people at this point are still wandering through a wilderness. God's people have not yet settled down in their permanent homeland in Israel. And so for practical purposes, God is having Moses and the Israelites construct a tent. So you can kind of think of the tabernacle like a motorhome, really, really nice motorhome, by the way. And you can think of Solomon's later temple as more of a permanent home. God's people are on the move, and so God has them build a tent that can be put up and broken down. But the point of it was so God could accompany his people in their travels to the land of Canaan. God wanted to relate to his people. He wanted to dwell in the midst of his people even while they were on the move. And it's no coincidence that later in the book of Numbers, chapter 2, we read that when God set up his tent, so to speak, it was right in the midst of the camp. He's making a point there that I am gonna be in the midst of my people. It was at the heart and center of the camp. Here's what Numbers 2 tells us in verses one and two. "'The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, "'The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard "'with the banners of their father's houses. "'They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side.'" And you go on to read that of the 12 tribes of Israel, the way that they would set up the camp throughout their wilderness wanderings were that there would be three of the tribes on the east, three tribes on the north, three tribes on the west, and three tribes on the south, and God's house was right there in the middle. God's point was, again, I am going to dwell in the midst of my people, literally. Here's something important for us to know, though. Although God was in the midst of his people in the tabernacle, the people did not have direct or unrestricted access to God. It would sort of be like if you went to a concert at the Staples Center. Let's say you went to go see Justin Timberlake at the Staples Center. It would be true that Justin Timberlake is in the midst of all of the people, but it's also true that you don't have direct or unrestricted access to him. Right, If you were really enjoying the concert and jumped out of your seat and ran down to the stage because you wanted to relate to Justin Timberlake, you'd probably get struck down by security, right? Well, there was something similar going on in the Old Testament here, that yes, God was dwelling in the midst of his people, but that didn't mean that they had unrestricted direct access to him. In fact, their access to God was quite restricted at this point in salvation history, God, you should know, actually dwelt in the most inner part of this tent called the Holy of Holies. There was a veil that separated the rest of the tabernacle from the place where the Ark of the Covenant was and where the mercy seat was, where God's presence actually dwelt. And only one person was allowed to go in there. And even that one person, the high priest, was only allowed to go in there one time a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement for the sins of God's people. We read about this in Leviticus 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Those are verses one and two, but in Leviticus 16:34, I'll pick up the story there he says, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of their sins. So even Aaron, the high priest, if he just went waltzing into the holy of holies at any other point throughout the year other than the day of atonement, guess what happens? He drops dead. He didn't have free access into the presence of God. This tabernacle, was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of ritual. And all of that communicates God's holiness and man's sinfulness. God's holiness in that only those who had been set apart and cleansed through ceremonial washings and sacrifices could enter into the tabernacle and minister there. And man's sinfulness in the fact that sin was handled there sacrifices were made so that God's wrath would not destroy his people. And in this way, the tabernacle and later the temple are really demonstrations of God's unbelievable grace. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that when God threatened to not continue going on with his people, and remember Moses intercedes When God threatened, he said, I'm not going to continue. My presence isn't going to go with you so that I don't destroy these people in my wrath. Because of their sin, they deserved God's judgment. But God sets up this tabernacle and the sacrifices there as a way of extending grace to his people so that in his wrath, he would not have to destroy them for their sins. He creates this way for their sins to be covered so his presence could remain with them. Now, if you lived 3,500 years ago, and you were wandering in the wilderness toward Canaan with the rest of these Hebrews, all of this would sound to you like very good news. Wow, God didn't strike us dead after we worshiped that cow. Remember that big blunder we did back there? Didn't kill us. And wow, God's going to make ways for our sins to be dealt with. And wow, God's actually going to dwell in the midst of us. He hasn't forsaken us as his people. This would all be good news. But church, I want you to know that as great as this was, God was not pleased to merely cover man's sins temporarily, nor to have his people live forever with just limited access to his presence. So as we continue to read the Bible, we see that the presence of God would not remain in a tabernacle or even later in a temple forever. We see that the presence of God would actually arrive in the most peculiar of ways in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the second point for us this morning as we're considering the theme of the tabernacle, which is the presence of God. We see in the Bible the presence of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So you need to understand that God's presence among his people in the tabernacle and later the temple in the Old Testament paved the way... For God's supreme appearance in the New Testament through Jesus of Nazareth. In John chapter 1, John begins his story of the life of Jesus with this amazing announcement. In the beginning was the Word, he writes. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Then down in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> Excuse me, John is making a startling announcement here. That Jesus, the one that they had seen, the one that the disciples had walked with and ate meals with, was none other than then the preexistent word was none other than God the Son. Jesus was God the Son become man to dwell among us. Now what's so interesting about John 1.14 is the word there when it says that the word dwelt among us, the word dwelt there is better translated tabernacled, which is a clear allusion to what we're talking about in the book of Exodus. It's a clear allusion to the idea that in the Old Testament, God's presence was in the tabernacle, but now when Jesus came, God's presence is in Christ himself. This is amazing. Jesus Christ is God become man. All of our creeds teach us that he is fully God and he's fully man. This is why Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. So again, follow me here. First, God dwelt in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. Then he dwelt among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Church, this has huge implications for us about who Jesus of Nazareth actually is. First, just as the tabernacle was the only way to God's presence in the Old Covenant, Jesus is the only way to God's presence in the New Covenant. That's why when people say, I believe Jesus is a way to God, That's really nonsensical. Because listen to me, when you come to Jesus, you are coming to God himself. Jesus of Nazareth is the God-man. Second, just as the tabernacle was a place of sacrifice and a place of cleansing under the old covenant, in Jesus we can experience sacrifice and cleansing under the new covenant. Here's what the book of Hebrews says about this. Hebrews 10.4 for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, pause. You need to know that all of the sacrifices of these animals that happened in the tabernacle and the temple, they merely covered sin temporarily. Hebrews is saying those sacrifices could never actually take away your sins. They were a temporary covering. Hebrews 10 goes on in verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But, here's the key, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Christ's sacrifice, where he laid down his life on Calvary's cross, actually removes our sin from us. It doesn't just cover it. It actually takes it away. Though our sin was red like scarlet, in Christ it becomes white as snow. In Christ our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. In John one twenty nine, John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus, makes this declaration, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the very thing that Hebrews said the sacrifice of animals couldn't do. They couldn't take away our sins. And now John the Baptist says of Jesus that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 John 1, 1.7, we read this, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And listen, the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Family, listen, under the Old Covenant, the Israelites had limited access to God's presence because the sacrifices of animals merely covered their sins temporarily. But through Jesus Christ and by our faith in Him, our sins are entirely removed from us, allowing us unrestricted access to our Father in heaven. We don't go one day a year. We don't have to go to a special location. You can stop and pause at any point throughout any day. And you can call on the name of the Lord and He's going to hear you. You can seek your Father and He's ready to respond to you. This is amazing good news. The veil was torn when Christ was crucified. Here's Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Wait, when that happens, people die. Not anymore. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Unrestricted unlimited access to God because of Christ. First, God dwelt in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. Then God dwelt among his people in the person of Jesus Christ. But there is yet another shift in the presence of God in salvation history. I'm going to say something crazy right now. In fact, I have to just ask you, please restrain your neighbor from coming out of their seat right now. This is just I'm going to talk really, really crazy here. This is going to blow some minds. But we need to talk about this. The presence of God in the heart of every believer. The presence of God in the heart of every believer. That was crazy, right? Totally crazy. Insane. God's presence in the heart of people? Yes, that's exactly what the Bible teaches us. That after the sacrificial death of Jesus... And after he rose again from the dead, shortly thereafter, he ascended back to heaven to the Father. And when he did, the Father sent the Holy Spirit to us. And now we have become God's new temple of flesh inhabited by God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. We see this beginning in Acts chapter 2. There's a famous story in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where the church is really born, so to speak. Pentecost was an ancient feast or festival of the Jewish people. And so at this point in time, Jews from all over the world would once a year at the appointed time for Pentecost travel into the city of Jerusalem. There would be upwards of hundreds of thousands of Jews that have gathered here for this feast. And at Pentecost, the disciples we read are together in an upper room. And when they are, the Holy Spirit shows up. And we read this really bizarre little footnote there that confuses a lot of people that when the Spirit shows up, there's this mighty rushing wind that comes through the room where they're meeting and there's these these flames of tongues that basically descend on the heads of all of the disciples there. Okay, this is like stranger things going on here, I understand, but, but it's not. There's a point here that's being communicated by God. What's with the fire resting on the heads of every disciple in the upper room? Well, a lot of commentators will say, let's pause and think. Where have we seen fire show up in the story of Exodus? When Moses met with God the first time, what type of bush was it? It an oleander? We don't know. All we know is it was a burning bush, right? God shows up, Moses meets with him, and the bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. Later, after God delivers his people through uh, all these trials in Egypt and God begins to lead them out of Egypt, he's leading them by a cloud during the day, which is really nice on a sunny day, but he's leading them in what at night? Pillar of fire. Just so you all know that every answer is going to be fire from this point forward, okay? (laughs) A pillar of fire at night. Then in Exodus 19, God is going to show up on Mount Sinai to have a meeting with Moses. And when he does, check this out, here's Exodus 19, 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And now, as our Bibles are turned to the conclusion of Exodus, Exodus forty thirty eight, for the cloud of the Lord is on the tabernacle by day, and what was in it by night? And fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The fire is the presence of God. That's what it's communicating throughout the Exodus narrative. And so what's going on in Acts chapter two? As the church is now in this new moment of salvation history and there are flames of fire resting on the heads of every one of the disciples. I would submit to you that what's being communicated is that God is saying, guess what? I have a new temple. Guess what? My presence is shifting into the heart of every single believer. And who would these believers be? Well, these were tongues of fire, which represented all the different languages of all the different people groups of the earth. God is not just the God of the Jews. God is the God of all peoples and his presence now dwells In the hearts of all peoples, no matter what language they speak, no matter the color of their skin, no matter their socioeconomic status, God will dwell in their hearts as they turn to Christ in faith and repentance. And his very presence is dwelling in us, his new temple. I told you this was crazy. Isn't this crazy? If you still don't believe me, I'll quote Jesus because he's authoritative. John 14, 16, and 17. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, Jesus says, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus promises this in the upper room that the Holy Spirit himself would actually be in the hearts of his followers. The apostle Paul even calls believers a temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Church, listen, this is a radical shift in the presence of God. God dwelt in the tabernacle, and then the person of Jesus Christ, and now he's in the heart of every believer. We cannot lose sight of how amazing this truth is and how radical this is. The living God literally dwells inside of each and every believer. Now, if like me, you were raised in the church, you hear this and it's just kind of like, uh-huh, yeah, no, we know that, we get that. But, but if you're new to Christianity, like if this is your first time in a church or you just don't have a lot of experience with church, you probably understand how crazy this sounds. What I'm saying to you, you're probably uncomfortably looking around waiting for things to get really weird. They're not going to get really weird, but this is incredible. This is the glory of the gospel that we who are created in the image of God but have damaged that image through sin are now indwelt by God himself so that he can renew his image in us. Excuse me. I want to pause for a moment, though, and I want to draw your attention to the Trinitarian shape of the idea of the presence of God in the Bible. God is referred to as a father in the Old Testament, and his presence dwells in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. But we realize with the coming of Christ that yes, God is a Father, but now His presence is being mediated through Jesus, God the Son. Finally, we see that God's presence is being mediated through the Holy Spirit living inside of each and every believer. Now again, if you're new to Christianity and you're listening carefully right now, you probably have several questions with what I'm saying. And this might be quite confusing, but the Bible teaches us that there is one God but He has eternally existed in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible teaches us. Thank you, Hank. And this is what all of our creeds reflect. In fact, we sing a song in our worship that is loosely based off of the Apostles' Creed. It's called, This I Believe. And here's how that song goes. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit our God is three in one. And we see this even in the idea of God's presence throughout Scripture, that there is one God who exists in three distinct persons. And God the Holy Spirit is living inside of all of God's children right now. Well, the implications of this are huge. I'll only give us one this morning. Just as the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a place of holiness because God's presence was there, you and I, if we're Christians, ought to live lives of holiness because God's presence is here in us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Paul says, "Or Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Okay, if that's true, then what should I do? He says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in you. Your body. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 and 8. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay. Let's bring this all together and bring this sermon to a close. And all God's people said, Encore. Amen why would you guys say that? That's the point when you say, encore, no, more of this, more of this. Okay, and all God's people say, amen. We'll stick with that. So let's wrap this up and tie everything together this morning. The storyline of the Bible is all about God's presence among his people. It began in the garden until paradise was lost. Then God took up residence in the tabernacle and later the temple. Then God tabernacled among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And today God is dwelling in the hearts of every follower of Jesus. But the Bible ends, like all great stories, by coming around full circle. At the end of the age, God is going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And he's going to dwell with us forever. Listen to Revelation 22 final chapter of the Bible. Here's verses one through five. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. It's like the garden is restored. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse three, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Check out verse four. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. How does the story of the history of the world end up? It ends up with God recreating the heavens and the earth. God bringing a garden city to life. Where God, we're told in chapter 21 of Revelation, is the temple. There's no temple anymore. Because there's no need for any restriction between God and his people. And we finally see him face to face. And when we do, we don't die. No, 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 when we do, we actually are living life to its fullest in the presence of God. God has done so much to be with us. God has taken dramatic steps to be with the ones that he loves. And I wonder this morning as we close, if you've received his love yet. I wonder if you've experienced God's presence. Well, how would you do that? The Bible tells us of all that God has done for us to make this a possibility. The Bible tells us of God's great love and how God has dealt with our sin, first through animals that were being sacrificed, but supremely through his own son, Jesus of Nazareth, who lived a righteous life and then who died on the cross in our place. The scriptures tell us that all of God's children's sin were placed upon Christ on the cross there. And Jesus dealt with our sin. And Jesus rose again three days later, conquering death, and He's alive now with outstretched arms looking at us saying that He is willing to forgive us of our sins. He's willing to bring us back into right relationship with our Father. So the Bible tells us what God has done for us to experience His love. But how do we receive that? Very simply, the Scriptures teach us it's through faith, and repentance. What does that mean? Simply put, repentance is having a change of mind, which always involves a change of heart and change of life. In other words, before hearing about what God has done for you, you were going one way in your life. You had a certain God in your life. Maybe it was Buddha. Maybe it was Allah. Maybe it was yourself sitting on the throne of your own life. And you were going in this direction and you were living in sin and you were disregarding God and His law and His love. And when you repent, that means you do an about face. You change your mind and now you turn toward God and faith means that you now are trusting in Him alone to be your God. You're trusting in Him alone to be your Savior and to be your Lord. So really, it's not about what we do at all. It's about what He's done and us saying I'm going to trust in Him to save me from my sins. And I'm going to follow Him as my Lord and my God. And you can do that in an instant. You can do that before you leave this church this morning. In your own heart, you can say yes to Jesus today. You can say, I'm done living for myself. I am going to begin following this God who the Bible is announcing to me. I'm going to begin following Jesus Christ who died for my sins and who is alive forevermore, and who is willing to give His Spirit to me to live in my heart forever. If you have not done that, I would encourage you to make that decision today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for what we are learning through Your Word that you are not some distant, detached deity who doesn't care about people. Nothing could be further from the truth. As we've seen today, the storyline of the Bible is about a God who desires and delights in dwelling with his people. But of course, we only get three chapters into the Bible and we realize that we've messed that up. That our first parents sinned in the garden. Drew, drew a separation between themselves and their God. And all of us have sinned ourselves and we're just continuing this existence of actually being separated and being cut off from this God who loves us and created us and wants to dwell with us. But Lord, we're so thankful that at the fullness of time, You sent Your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice for our sins and to rise again from the dead conquering our great enemies of sin and death. And we're so thankful that Christ is alive today, that He's in heaven, ruling and reigning on His throne. And we're so thankful that He's going to come back again. and He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth. And that all of us who have turned by faith to Him and are being filled with the Spirit now will dwell in Your presence forever. Unlimited, unrestricted access no longer living by faith, but actually living by sight. What a glorious day. It's a day that we read about where there will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death forever. Lord, we praise you this morning for the good news of the Bible. We praise you for the work that you've done for each and every one of us. And Lord, I pray that as we now are temples of the living God, temples of the Holy Spirit, that you would empower us by your Spirit to live lives that are holy, that are just totally different from the non-Christian family members that we have and friends and neighbors and coworkers, that they would see that we have a true and genuine love for God in our hearts, which spills over to a true and genuine love for them. And I pray that they'd be drawn to you through our witness. So Lord, empower us to be these living temples every day of our lives. Lord, I pray for any that have joined us that have never put their faith in Christ, have never experienced the joy and the peace that it is to have your sins forgiven and to be brought into a relationship with their God. I pray that today would be the day that they are deciding to follow Christ. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.